Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Eleanor, Dora Rose's voice was low and urgent, with none of the fluting snootiness I remembered. Look at me. Eleanor, how did they find you? We all agreed to hide. Ah, the good stuff. Drama. I lived for it. I scuttled down a branch to pay closer attention. Dora Rose had draped the limp girl over her lap, stroking back her black, black hair. White feathers everywhere, trailing from Eleanor's shoulders, bloodied at the breast, muddied near the hem. Eleanor must have been midway between a fleshing and a downing when that swan hunter's arrow got her. Dora Rose? Eleanor's wet red hand left a death smear on her sister's face. They smoked out the cygnets, drove them to the lake, nets, horrible nets. They caught Pope, Moline, Conrad, even Dash. We tried to free them, but more hunters came, and I turned herself into a swan, I thought, and flew the hell fowl off. Smart Eleanor. She'd not see it that way, of course. Swan people fancied themselves a proud folk, elegant as lords in their haughty halls, mean as snakes in a tight corner. Me, I preferred survivors to heroes or heroines, however calmly. I barely escaped, Eleanor finished. From the looks of that gusher in her ribs, I'd guessed escaped was a gross overstatement. But that's swans for you. Can't speak, but they hyperbolize. Every girl's a princess. Every boy is a prince. Swan folk take their own metaphors so seriously, they hold themselves lofty from the vulgar throng. Dora Rose explained it once, when we were younger, and she still deigned to chat with the likes of me. It's not that we think less of anyone, Maurice. It's just that we think better of ourselves. <laughs> Dora Rose, you mustn't linger. They'll be tracking me. Eleanor's hand slipped from Dora Rose's cheek. Her back arched, her bare toes curled under, and her hands clawed the mossy ground. From her lips burst the most beautiful song, a cascade of notes like moonlight on a waterfall, like a wave breaking on boulders, like the first snowmelt of spring. All swan girls are princesses, true, but if styling themselves as royalty ever got boring, they could always go in for the opera. <laughs> Eleanor was a soprano. Her final stretched notes pierced even me. Dora Rose used to tell me that I had such tin ears as could be melted down for a saucepan, which at least might then be flipped over and used for a drum, thus contributing in a trivial way to the musical arts. So maybe I was a little tone deaf. Didn't mean I couldn't enjoy a swan song when I heard one. As she crouched anxiously over Eleanor's final aria, Dora Rose seemed far remote from the incessantly clever, sporadically sweet, gloriously vain girl who used to be my friend. The silvery sheen of her skin was frosty with pallor. As the song faded, its endmost high notes stuttering to a sigh that slackened the singer's white lips, Dora Rose whispered, Eleanor, no answer.
My nose twitched as the smell below went from dying swan girl to freshly dead carcass. Ollie ollie in for free, as we like to say. Among my folk, carrion's a feast that's first come, first serve, and I was well-placed to take the first bite. I mean, I could wait until Dora Rose lit on out of there. Not polite to go nibbling on someone's sister while she watched, after all. Just not done. Not when that someone had been sort of a friend. All right, unrequited crush, but that was kid stuff. I'm over it. Grown up, moved on. I heard the sound before she did. Ulia Gole's ivory horn. Not good. Psst. I called from my tree branch. Psst, Dora Rose, up here. Her head snapped up, twilight eyes searching the tangle of the juniper branches. This tree was the oldest and tallest in the maize wood. Unusually colossal for its kind, even with its trunk bent double and its branches bowing like a willow's. Nevertheless, Dora Rose's sharp gaze caught my shadowy shape and raked at it like fingernails. I grinned at her, preening my whiskers. Always nice to be noticed by a swan princess. Puts me on my mettle. Who is it? Her voice was hoarse from grief and fear. I smelled both on her, salt and copper. Forget me so quickly, ladybird. Before she could answer, I dove nose first down the shaggy trunk, fleshing as I went. By the time I hit ground, I was a man. Man-shaped, anyway, maybe a little undersized. Maybe scraggly, with a beard that grew in patches, a nose that fit my face better in my other shape, and eyes only a mother could trust, and only if she'd been drunk since breakfast. <laughs> Maurice. The incomparable, I agreed, your very own Maurice. Dora Rose stood suddenly, tall and icy in her blood-soaked silver gown. I freely admit to a dropped jaw, an abrupt excess of saliva. She'd only improved with time. Her hair was as pale as her sister's had been dark, her eyes as blue as Lake Cyrenus, where she and her folk dwelled during their winter migrations. The naked grief I'd sensed in her a few moments ago had already cooled like her sister's corpse. Swan folk have long memories, but a short emotional attention span, unlike rat folk, whose emotions could still get the better of them after 15 years. What are you doing in the maze wood? The snootiness I'd missed was back in her voice. Fabulous. Is that what this is? I peered around, scratching behind my ear. She always hated when I scratched. I thought it was the theater, the tragedy of the bonnie swans, the ballad of the two sisters. Her eyes narrowed. Maurice, of all the times to crack your tasteless jokes. Aroo! The ivory horn again. This time Dora, heard, Dora Rose heard it too. Her blue eyes flashed black with fury and terror. She hesitated, frozen, between flesh and feather, fight and flight. I figured I'd help her out, just this once, for old time's sake. Up the tree, I suggested. I'll give you a boost. She cast a perturbed look at dead Eleanor, grief flickering briefly across her face. Rolling my eyes, I snapped, Up, princess, unless you want to end the same here and now. Won't the hound sent me there? Dora Rose, good girl, was already moving toward me as she asked the question, Thank the captured god. Start arguing with a swan girl, and you'll not only find yourself staying up all night, you'll also suffer all the symptoms of a bad hangover in the morning, with none of the fun parts in between. This old tree is wily enough to mask your scent, my plume, if you ask nicely. We're old friends, the juniper and I. I'd seen enough swan folk slaughtered beneath this tree to keep me tethered to it by curiosity alone. All right, 
So maybe I stayed with the mildly interested and not at all pathological hope of meeting Dora Rose again in some situation not unlike this one, perhaps to rescue her from the ignominy of such a death. But I didn't tell her that, not while her twin sister lay dead on the ground, her blood seeping into the juniper's roots. By the time Eleanor had gotten to the tree, it'd have been too late for me to attempt anything anyway, even if I had been so inclined. And then, Dora Rose's hand on my shoulder, her bare heel in my palm, and it was like little silver bells ringing under my skin where she touched me. Easy, Maurice, easy, you sleek and savvy rat, you bide. Up she went, and I after her, furring and furling myself into my more compact but no less natty shape. We were both safe and shadow-whelmed in the bent old branches by the time Mayor Ulia Goal and her swan hunters arrived on the scene. If someone held a piece of cheese to my head and told me to describe Ulia Goal in one word or starve, I'd choose magnificent. I like cheese too much to dither. At a guess, I'd say Ulia Gol's ancestry wasn't human. Ogre on her mama's side, giant on her daddy's. She was taller than Dora Rose, who herself would tower over most mortal men, though Dora Rose was long-lined and lean of limb, whereas Ulia Gol was a brawny woman. Her skin was gold as a glazed chicken, her head full of candy-pink curls, as was the current fashion. Her breasts were like two mozzarella balls ripe for the gnawing, with hips like two smoked hams. A one-woman banquet, that Uliagol, and she knew it too. The way to a mortal's heart is through its appetite, and Uliagol prided herself on collecting mortal hearts. It was a kind of game with her, her specialty, her sorcery. She had a laugh that reached right out and tickled your belly. They say it was her laugh that won her the last election in Amundale. It wasn't. More like a mob-wide love spell she cast on her constituents. I don't know much about magic, but I know the smell of it. Amundale stinks of Ulia Gol. Its citizens accepted her rule with wretched adoration, wondering why they often woke of a night in a cold sweat from foul dreams of their mayor feasting on the flesh of their children. On the surface, she was terrifyingly jovial. She liked hearty dining and a good hard day at the hunt, was known for her fine whiskey, exotic lovers, intricate calligraphy, and dabbling in small, totally harmless, it was said, magics, mostly in the realm of the performing arts. A little too enthusiastic about taxes, everyone thought, but mostly used them to keep Amundale in good order, streets, bridges, schools, secret police, that sort of thing. <laughs> Mortal politics was the idlest of my hobbies, but Ulia Gol had become a right danger to the local folk, and that directly affected me. Swans weren't the only magic creatures she'd hunted to extinction in the maze wood. Before this latest kick, Ulia Gol had ferreted out the fox folk, those that fleshed to mortal shape with tails tucked up under their clothes, decimated the population in this area. You might ask how I know. After all, fox folk don't commune with rat folk any more than swan folk do. We just don't really talk to each other. But then, I always was extraordinary and really nosy. Me, I suspected Ulia Gol's little hunting parties had a quite specific purpose. I think she knew the folk could recognize her as inhuman. Mortals, of course, had no idea what she was, what mortals might do if they discovered their mayor manipulated magic to make the ballot box come out in their favor. Who knew? Mortals in general are content to remain divinely stupid and bovinely docile for long periods of time, but when their ire's roused, there is no creature cleverer in matters of torture and revenge. 
Uliagol adjusted her collar of rusty fox fur. It clashed terribly with her pink and purple riding habit, but she pulled it off with panache. Her slanted beaver hat dripped half a dozen black-tipped tails, which bounced as she strode into the juniper trees, clearing. Two huge jowled hanks, uh, hounds flanked her. She caught up her long train over her arm, her free hand clasping her crossbow with loose proficiency. Ha! shouted Ulia Gol over her shoulder to someone out of my sight line. I thought I got her. She squatted over dead Eleanor, studying her. What do you think of this one, Hans? Too delicate for the glockenspiel, I reckon. Too tiny for the tuba. The signets completed our wind and percussion sections. Those two cobs in yesterday's pen did for the brass. We might as well finish up the strings here. A man emerged from a corridor in the maze wood. He led Ulia Gol's tall roan mare and his own gray gelding and looked with interest at the dead swan girl. A pretty one, he observed. She'll make a fine harp, Madam Mayor, unless I miss my guess. Outstanding! I love a good harp song, but I always found the going rates too dear. Harpists are so full of themselves. Her purple grin widened. Get the kids in here. The rest of her swan hunters began trotting into the heart glade on their plump little ponies. Many corridors, as you'd expect at a maze wood of this size, dead-ended in thorn, stone, waterfall, hedge, cliff edge. But Ulia Gol's child army must have had the key to unlocking the maze's secrets, for they came unhesitatingly into the glade and stood in the shadow of the juniper tree where we hid. Ah, the sweetums. Pink-cheeked they were, the little killers, green-caped, and all of them wearing the famous multicolored beaked masks of Amundale. Mortals are always fixed in their flesh, like my rat cousins, who remain rats no matter what. Can't do furrings, downings, or scalings like the folk can. So they make do with elaborate costumes, body paint, millinery, and mass exterminations of our kind. Kind of adorable, really. Ulia Gol clapped her hands. Her pink curls bounced and jounced. The foxtails on her beaver hat swung blithely. Dismount! Her hunters did so. Whose turn is it, my little wretches? She bawled at them. Has to be someone fresh. Someone who's bathed in mare's milk by moonlight since yesterday's hunt. Now who's clean? Who's my pure and pretty chanticleer today? Come, don't make me pick one of you. Oh, the awkward silence of children called upon to volunteer. A few heads bowed. Other masks lifted and looked elsewhere as if that act rendered them invisible. Presently, one of the number was pushed to the forefront, so vehemently it fell and scraped its dimpled knees. I couldn't help noticing that this child had been standing at the very back of the crowd, hugging itself and hoping to escape observation. Fat chance, kidling. I licked my lips. I knew what came next. I'd been watching this death dance from the juniper tree for weeks now. Ulia Gol grinned horribly at the fallen child. Tag, she boomed. You're it. Her heavy hand fell across the child's shoulder, scooting it closer to the dead swan girl. Dig, dig her a grave fit for a princess. The child trembled in its bright green hunter's cape. Its jaunty red mask was tied askew, like a deformed cardinal's head stitched atop a rag doll. The quick desperation of its breath was audible even from the heights where we perched. Me, sweating and twitching, Dora rose tense and pale, glistening faintly in the dimness of the canopy. Dora Rose lay on her belly, arms and legs wrapped around the branch, leaning as far forward as she dared. She watched the scene with avid eyes, and I watched her. 
She wouldn't have known why her people had been hunted all up and down the lake this autumn. Even when the swans began disappearing a few weeks ago, the survivors hadn't moved on. Swan folks were big on tradition. Lake Cyrenus was where they wintered, and that was that. To establish a new migratory pattern would have been tantamount to blasphemy. That's swans for you. I might have gone to warn them, I guess, except that the last time she'd seen me, Dora Rose made it pretty clear that she'd rather wear a gown of graveyard nettles and pluck out her own feathers for fletching than have to endure two minutes more in my company. Of course, we were just teenagers then. I gave the old juniper tree a pat, muttering a soundless prayer for keepsake and concealment, just in case Dora Rose had forgotten to do that much in the first furious climb. Then I saw her lips move, saw her silver fingers stroking the shaggy branch. Good. So she too kept up a running stream of supplication. I'd no doubt she knew all the proper formulae. Swan folk are as religious as they are royal, maybe because they figure they're the closest things to gods as may still be cut and bleed. Why aren't you digging yet? bellowed Ulia Gol, hooking my attention downward. A masterful woman, and so well quaffed. How fun it was to watch her make those children jump. In my present shape, I can scare grown men out of their boots. They're that afraid of plague carriers in these parts. The folk are immune to plague, but mortals can't tell a fixed rat from one of us to save their lives. Amandale itself was mostly spared a few years back when things got really bad, and the plague bells ringing death tolls in distant towns at last fell silent. Ulia Gol spread the rumor abroad that it was her mayoral prowess that got her town through unscathed. Another debt Amandale owed her. How she loomed. Please, Madam Mayor, please, piped the piccolo voice from behind the cardinal mask. It fair vibrated with apprehension. I, I cannot dig. I have no shovel. Is that all? Hans, a shovel for our shy red bird. Hans of the Grey Gelding trudged forward with amiable alacrity. I liked his style. Reminded me of me. He was not tall, but he had a dapper air. One of your blondes was Hans, high-colored, with a crooked but entirely proportionate nose, a gold goateed chin, and boots up to the thigh. He dressed all in red except for his green cape, and he wore a knife on his belt, a fine big knife with one edge curved and outrageously serrated. I shuddered deliciously, deciding right then and there that I would follow him home tonight and steal his things while he slept. The shovel presented, the little one was bid a third time to dig. How am I doing for time? Two minutes? The grave needed only be a shallow one for Ulia Gol's purposes. This I had apprehended in my weeks of study. The earth hardly needed a scratch in its surface. Then the swan princess, or prince, or heap of stiffening signets, as was the case yesterday, was rolled in the turned dirt and partially covered. Then Ulia Gol, towering over her small trooper with the blistered hands, would rip the mask off its face and roar, Weep. If you love your life, weep, or I'll give you something to weep about. Unmasked, this afternoon's child proved to be a young boy, one of the innumerable cobbler-saw brood, unless I miss my guess, baker's children, the proverbial dozen, give or take a miscarriage, always carried a slight smell of yeast about them. Froggit, I think this little one's name was, the seven-year-old, after the twins, but before the toddlers and the infant. I was quite fond of the cobbler saws. Kids are so messy, you know, strewing crumbs everywhere. Baker's kids have the best crumbs. Their poor mother was often too harried to sweep up after the lot of them until bedtime, well after the gleanings had been got. Right now, dreamy little Froggit looked sick. His hands begrimed with dirt and Eleanor's blood, his brown hair matted with sweat. He covered her corpse well and good. Now on cue, he started sobbing. 
Truth be told, he hadn't needed Uliagol's shouting to do so. His tears spattered the dirt, turning spots of it to mud. Uliagol raised her arms like a conductor. Her big, shapely hands swooped through the air like kestrels. Sing, my children. You know the ditty well enough by now, I trust. This one's female. Make sure you alter the lyrics accordingly. One, two, three, and... One in obedience... Twenty young swan hunters lifted up their voices in wobbly chorus. The hounds bayed mournfully along. I hummed, too, under my breath. When they'd started the swan hunt a few, few weeks ago, the kids used to join hands and gamble around the juniper tree, all maple-like at Ulia Gold's urging. But the mayor still dis since discovered that her transformation spell worked just as well if they all stood still. Pity. I miss the dancing. Used to give the whole scene a nice theatrical flair. Poor little swan girl, heart pierced through, buried neath the moss and dew. Restless in your grave you'll be, at the foot of the juniper tree. But your bones shall sing her song, morn and noon, and all night long. The music cut off with an abrupt slash of Ulia Gol's hands. She nodded once in curt approval. Go on, she urged Froggett Cobblersall. Dig her back up again. But here Froggett's courage failed him, or perhaps found him, for he scrubbed his naked face of tears smearing worse things there, and stared up with big brown eyes that hated only one thing worse than himself, and that was Ulia Gol. No, he said. So I assume you have that book for sale? Yep. So go and buy it, and we'll take about a 10, 15-minute break, and uh, after that we'll be back with Sarah. So please enjoy Woo. yourself. Hello. Yoo-hoo. Hi. Welcome back to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. We're here the third Wednesday of every month, and um, I don't know. You can find, oh, actually, you can, if you go to the website, you can sign up if you're not already signed up. And the only thing we send you are notices about this once or twice a month. So if you're interested, go to, I guess it's fantasticfictionatkgb.com or something like that. Google it. Google it. Yeah, right. It's not the. It's not going to be at the KGB bar. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Yeah, but we don't. But personally, we do. We don't have a, a thing. You know, like we don't have a KGB thing. Right. We have our personal. Facebook pages and Twitter accounts. It's like, okay, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, our next reader is Sarah McCary, who is the author of the novels All Our Pretty Songs, Dirty Wings, and About a Girl. And she's also the editor and publisher of the chapbook series Guillotine. Guillotine. Her work has been nominated for the Norton Award and shortlisted for the Tiptree Award. And she's a recipient of a fellowship from the McDowell Colony. She has written for the New York Times Book Review, Glamour, Book Riot, Tour.com, and other places. And um, do you have books to sell? Yes. And Okay, both she and Claire have books to sell. So make sure they don't have to take them home, all right? So you have to come and finish buying them all and have them sign them before we leave tonight. And also, if you have time, have another drink. <laughs> and welcome, Sarah. Um, 
Uh, thank you so much for coming and thank you for having me here. Thank you to the KGB bar. Um, I've been going to readings here since long before I had anything um, that should be read in public. So this is a special, um, special time. Uh, so thank you. Um, this is a short story and it's called Blue is a Darkness Weakened by Light. Marcus arrived on the third day of school. Of course, Resumen didn't know then his name is Marcus. All she knew was that the new guy was hot, like really hot, shampoo commercial hair hot, tiny skin like a lion's golden coat, just like when the sun hits a lion's golden coat on a plane somewhere in Africa, hot. He walked into homeroom just like a lion, a golden lion, totally confident and cool. His confident gaze raked the classroom, like he could eat them all alive if he wanted to. And then he looked right at her with gorgeous glowing violet eyes, as if there was no one else in the world, as if his whole world just right then was Rosamund. Consider deleting second and third use of lion, I write in the margins, to avoid repetition. Are his eyes really glowing? Asks the vampire, looking over my shoulder. Doesn't that seem inconvenient? Glowing eyes? Glowing eyes, I write. Reword? It isn't what you're thinking with me and the vampire, we're just friends. Probably you've read too many books. We meet every evening on the corner of 26th and 6th Ave after I finish work and go for cocktails at the Half King. I am an assistant to a literary agent and he is a vampire, which is, I guess, a certain form of employment. <laughs> there are a lot of people in this city who have money that comes from no transparent source, but as far as I know, the vampire is the only one who is a literal monster. Early in our acquaintance, I asked the vampire why he liked to spend time with me, why he had chosen me out of all the millions of other bright, gilded... Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Why had chosen me out of all the other bright, gilded girls moving in glittering packs through the night streets of the city? Soft-skinned, slim, cool girls with blinding teeth and neat manicures, all those immaculate, glossy-haired girls in white scarves and fur coats, leaving in their wake the scent of jasmine and new dollar bills. I don't know, said the vampire. You have a certain je ne sais quoi. <laughs> Tonight, the vampire is feeling clever. He's ordered a Bloody Mary, although that's not a nighttime kind of drink. The bartender gives him a dirty look, or the bartender gave him a dirty look when, the when he thought the vampire wasn't looking, and the vampire ran his finger over his teeth. Mm. Most nights the vampire drinks Pernod and complains daintily that he can't smoke indoors anymore, although it's been years since one could. Time is different for vampires, as you doubtless already know. The vampire has deigned to lend me his coat, which is the band jacket Eddie Simon did for Dior Homme. I did not know things like this before I met the vampire. <laughs> <laughs> Only that the vampire's, Google it, it's amazing. Uh, only that the vampire's jacket was beautiful and made me feel the first time I put it on as though I had been wearing the wrong clothes my entire life until ah. that moment. What does shampoo commercial hair mean? The vampire asks. I guess it means that he's clean, I say. <laughs> the vampire looks at me in surprise. Is that really all you people want now? My, my goodness, what a very different time it is indeed. It's my first winter in the city, and I can never manage to dress warmly enough. There are nights I think the cutting wind will pull me apart and cauterize what's left into solid ice. I came here with my pockets full of dreams, but the people-clotted streets are lonelier than anywhere I've known. The place I lived before never got cold enough to kill you. You can make it here, you can make it anywhere, the vampire says. I think he means this to be encouraging. <laughs> We met at the library on 6th, which is where I spend my weekends, because the building has heat and you do not have to pay anything in order to sit all afternoon and cry like a teenager into your open notebook. <laughs> I was reading a book about public executions in the 16th century when the vampire approached me. 
it's not altogether true, you know, the vampire said. <laughs> Although, of course, I didn't know at that time he was a vampire. I didn't know who he was at all, this very tall man with cool gray eyes that were startling against his dark skin. I'm sorry, I said. I'd only been in the city for a few months, but even then I could tell his clothes cost more than my rent. <laughs> I've read that book, the vampire said. It wasn't quite like that, although he gets close. I'm researching a novel, I said, although my tear-spotted notebook was blank. Is that so, the vampire said, how fascinating. Might I buy you a drink? I share a lofted apartment with four other girls in a part of the city that will not be cheap for much longer. Once a month, a black family moves out of my building and a white couple moves in. My roommates, like, all, like me, all came here to do things other than the things that they are now doing. Five of you with no walls, the vampire says in, hor in horror, like rats in a box. Well, I say, no one is ever home. But even empty of people, the apartment is filled with the miasma of human presence. The bathroom is eternally murky with leavings, clumps of hair, spent toothpaste tubes, a greasy sheen in the sink. The heat's been broken for months, and I sleep in two sweaters and wool socks. In the <laughs> We've all had that apartment. <laughs> in the morning, my stale breath clouds white in the pale air. I don't much like to go home, which suits the vampire just fine. He'll buy me drinks until the table slides across the floor. Sometimes he puts me in a taxi, and I wake up in front of my building with crumpled 20s and pieces of eight in my pocket, the cab driver's eyes meeting mine in the rearview mirror. You are very lucky, a cab driver said to me once, to have such a generous friend. I gave him one of the vampire's antique coins. I don't know if generous is the right word, I said, but I think he means well. Girls these days like to read about vampires, or so I am told by the literary agent, who makes her living off books that aren't very good. If she had dreams when they, once, they have long since wilted in the flickering gray-green lights of her windowless office. I suppose if one is not acquainted with an actual vampire, imaginary cruelty transformed into love sounds better than the world outside. All these monsters are only waiting for the right girl. All these girls are only waiting for the right monsters. Once a beauty finds her beast, she blossoms. Her junky old jewels turn out to be talismans. Her dead mother's locket, a portal to another plane. All she needs to learn magic is for someone to call her pretty. How other people will die? Torture, shot by police, hate crimes, executed by the state. Am I safe? I can't tell. In this city, in this century, I don't know what that word means anymore. The literary agent sends me home with manuscripts to meet on, read on my own time. This is for my career development. Some of them belong to her clients. Most of them belong to people who want to be. This one defies credibility, I write in the reader's report I submit to her. I agree! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. She emails back, although she sits six, six feet away from me. Please reject. Smiley face, smiley face, smiley face. <laughs> After science, she walked up to him. She could hardly believe her own nerve. She was shy. She didn't know how to talk to guys, especially not guys like this one. So cool, so energetic. She means enigmatic, surely, the vampire says. Or egotistic, I say, and I'm pleased when the vampire laughs. I make a note in the margins. We're supposed to choose lab partners, she said, trying to keep her voice from quivering. Quavering, the vampire says happily. <laughs> you are the one who wanted to help, I tell him, and he subsides, muttering into his Bloody Mary. You're new, so I'm guessing you don't have one. No, he said. His smell, now that he stood so close, was heady, masculine, like a forest, almost like a powerful animal with muscles, 
uh, with muscles bunching underneath its rippling skin, he was wearing an expensive brand name sweater that brought out the sapphire blue of his eyes. Violet? I wrote. You're trembling. Are you frightened? You have nothing to be afraid of, he murmured to her, the sapphire blue eyes full of promise. Yet. <laughs> Vampires, says the vampire with dignity, do not ripple. <laughs> A person can be afraid of the cold under the bed, dying alone, poverty, eels, earwigs, the subway at rush hour, stalled under the East River, crush of bodies, and the stink of human flesh. A vampire is not afraid of many things at all. After I first met the vampire, I'd learned he's read all the books. More books than you can imagine existing, more books than there are now. There are a lot of hours in a century. It isn't something you or I could understand so easily, what it is like to be the vampire. But I wanted to be his friend the first time I saw him, and it wasn't only because I was as lonely as a cat in a barrel. It has occurred to me since that perhaps his initial overtures were not entirely above board. I was obviously someone no one would miss. But it seems gauche to broach the topic now. <laughs> when I met him, I told the vampire it was going to be famous before he knew it, and he said he thought that was a nice idea. You know what I miss the most living here, he said, is seeing the stars. As if, unlike me, he had finally come to the end of all the places he could go. The literary agent is so thin her no bones knock together when she walks, and the stiff blonde cloud of her hair doesn't move when she does. Her clients write stories of teenage girls caught up by destiny, torn between the love of an angel and a werewolf, or an angel and a vampire, or a vampire and a werewolf, or a cyborg clone and a post-apocalyptic dictator. <laughs> the, girl, the girls are always named floridly, with baroque flourishes of extraneous consonants and unnecessarily vo unnecessary vowels, wise, winnowing <laughs> upward like vines bursting from soil. Evelyn, Madeline, Catherine, Rosamund. <laughs> Sometimes it's a vampire who's won their hearts for eternity. I try to imagine calling the vampire a vampire. <laughs> what are you laughing at, the vampire says. I look at the news online while the literary agent shouts into her phone. I just want a nanny who loves my child as much as I do, she screams. Is that so much to ask for 13 fucking dollars an hour? <laughs> the news is very bad. I close the browser as if I can make the possibility of harm disappear with a click. Do you feel pain? I ask the vampire later. Does your heart hurt every day you wake up in this awful burning world? I don't have a heart, you know that, the vampire says. I think you should try the Woodford Reserve. <laughs> the authoress of Rosamond's saga lives in a split-level mansion in a flat, grassy state where I have never been. She has three children and four cars. On the days her royalty statements arrive at the office, the vampire, sympathetic, buys me an extra drink. I have tried more than once to explain publishing to the vampire, but if you want to know the truth, I can't explain publishing to myself, let alone a person who isn't real. Rosamund is an ordinary girl who does not know she is extraordinary, unlike me, an ordinary girl who would strongly prefer to be someone else. She is an unerring magnet for supernatural entities of all kinds. I have never met Rosamund's creatrix, but I picture her with the face of a girl from my high school who was once a cheerleader and is now a dental hygienist. She is wealthy, but surely she does not contain multitudes. She is very pleasant on the phone. I live in a glamorous city, and I have a glamorous friend in the vampire. But I am penniless and unhappy and not in the least a pleasant person, so perhaps Rosamund and her authoress have made the better choice after all. It is obvious you are deeply invested in this story, I write in the editorial letter I compose on behalf of the literary agent. Your attention to detail shines. Why aren't you working on your own books, the vampire asks me every week. I'm waiting, I tell him, until I have something to say. 
no one else seems to be, he says. <laughs> I am slowly realizing I am not the greatest mind of my generation, but I'm sh pretty sure he already knows. <laughs> Things the vampire is suspicious of, manuscripts in which vampires have arcane tattoos, bare pectorals, magical powers, secrets, manuscripts in which vampires eat deer instead of girls. <laughs> Where does she get her ideas, do you think? The vampire asks, paging through Rosamund's adventures. Since he started helping me, my editorial letters have gone more cutting and less enthusiastic. <laughs> the literary agent says I am showing promise. The literary agent says perhaps one day I will have clients of my own. The vampire and I don't talk to you about what he gets up to when he's not with me. I know what vampires do in their spare time. I'm not stupid. Things that aren't true about vampires, at least the one I know, garlic crosses, that they don't drink cocktails, that they want to go back to high school and fall in love with pretty girls. <laughs> the vampire orders me french fries. More ketchup, he says, and I can't tell if he's joking. Old people think strange things are funny. Have you ever had foie gras, the vampire says? No, what about escargot? He's astounded by how little I know about the world. I am astounded by how little rich people know about lack. Once I had that sort of sushi they make with the poisonous fish, the vampire says, pucking the olive out of his Bloody Mary. It costs $1,000 and it'll kill you if they make it wrong. The vampire laughs and eats his olive. <laughs> Not that I could tell the difference. <laughs> the literary agent sends me to the coffee shop for her latte skim. Not too hot, three splendid, no foam. And to the organic jelly for her lunches. One chicken drumstick, one diet yogurt. Not strawberry or vanilla, one coconut water. Once she brought a cupcake to work and watched me eat it. So far, <laughs> that is the only nice thing she has done for me. I know I am a lost soul, which is what makes me different from my roommates. They are only aware that they want something else. I am always hungry. The vampire and I don't talk about the future or the past. How will I die? Cancer, car wreck, suicide, tor torment, drowning, don't know. Dyspepsia, dysentery, polar bears, wolves. Although, of course, all the predators are going extinct. I think about telling the vampire how much I hate the literary agent in a significant sort of way. I know the vampire does not belong to me. Still, he has to eat someone. It might, <laughs> it might as well be her. Why do you stay here if you're so unhappy, the vampire says. You could be one of those people who moves to the country and has a nice farm. What are those sorts of people called again? Rich, I say. <laughs> he shakes his head. So negative. You could at least date. Well, I say recklessly, you're a little out of my league. The vampire looks at me for a long time. More things under heaven and earth, etc. the vampire says at last. I look down at the page in front of me. Marcus, move closer. Rosamond's heart pounded in her throat. I know, I say before the vampire can protest. In her chest, I write, or did you mean something else here? <laughs> You're wasting your life, the vampire says, and I want to say, but what if I had longer? What if I had until the end of the world? The way things are these days, I imagine the vampire saying to me, that's not really much time at all. I can't move yet from where I am, I say to the vampire instead. I need more time. To what, asks the vampire. To breathe, I say. I don't know how to explain the harsh li frozen light of morning to a person who sleeps away all the days, how sometimes all you can see is the line surfacing one by one at the corners of your eyes. The vampire's nights have no metronome ticking out the seconds he has left. We don't, at sunrise, have much in common. Things human bodies do, piss, shit, stink, bleed, hope. Do you want another drink, the vampire says, watching me. Thanks, I say, gathering up Rosamund and Marcus. I have to work tomorrow. I should probably go. 
I give him back his coat. For a second, I almost think he will tell me to keep it. But unlike me, it is not replaceable. Good night, the vampire says and smiles. I'll see you in the evening. But the next night, the literary agent takes me to a literary party. I am wearing my favorite shirt, which is not a shirt you would notice, but it reminds me of home and summer and the smell of grass and sunlight. At the party, I realize the shirt is a mistake. Instead of happy, I look poor. The host is an editor. The party is in his apartment, which is the size of my entire floor. Glass windows overlook the river. There are servants carrying trays, or maybe they're only hired for the occasion. I drink a glass of wine in the corner and watch writers circulate, pretending I am at the zoo. The writers preen and adjust their plumage. The writers prance. The writers engage in mating displays. The writers congregate at the watering hole, wary of predators. The writers would not hesitate to leave the weakest among them behind. I eat a bacon-wrapped shrimp off a tray and a tiny piece of toast covered in salmon and a single fried dumpling filled with pork. After a while, the food, <laughs> after a while, the food-bearing waiters avoid me. <laughs> of course you've read infinite jest, a writer says behind me, but the essays? I turn around. The writer has an unflattering beard and shoes the vampire would not be caught dead in. Hi, I say, do you want to get out of here? Do I know you? The writer asks, and I shrug. Do you really care? <coughs> I don't know how I will tell the vampire. I have never been busy after work before, and it's not like he has a phone. Will he find another girl just like me? Will he learn, or does he already know the internal fungibility of human lives? It's too late to ask the writer's name again now that we are on our way to this bar he knows in the Lower East Side where his old roommate is the bartender, and later on it doesn't matter. Drinks keep appearing at my elbow as if by magic, and I find myself telling the writer all the things I can remember about my childhood. I was also misunderstood as a child, he tells me eagerly. I was not misunderstood, I say. I was superior. <laughs> oh, Rosamond, he laughs. My eyes are violet, I say into my drink, and my powers are very strong. He doesn't hear. I thought I would be excited to touch another person, but instead I am only resigned. I pretend that if I turn my head, the vampire will be waiting for me patiently just inside the door. You silly thing, you went to the wrong bar, he'll say, taking my hand. And we'll walk out together into the brutal night. Rosamond with her amulet, her sky full of stars. Rosamond in the gentle dark, the sweetness of love. Rosamond a blank slate, a mirror, a girl made easy to long for. Rosamond who will never, not ever, be any of us. The writer has bad taste in books, but his apartment is warm. He brings me vodka in a dirty mug, and I let him fuck me. That was great, he says afterward. And I think of something the vampire said once about the infinite human capacity for self-delusion. <laughs> you were human once, I said. Being human, the vampire said, is a skill it is useful to outgrow. <laughs> You're beautiful, the writer says, a snore flaring in his throat. You just haven't been in the city for very long, I say, but he's already asleep. If you excise the muscle of my heart, it would resemble a smoker's lung, blackened and gangrenous with ruin. But I think, how nice, and wait for my heretofore undiscovered powers to appear. I think about what I will tell the vampire tomorrow before I drift off in the writer's bed. I would have left before morning, I will say in a casual, sardonic way, <laughs> but the heat in his apartment worked. The vampire will present me with a powerful locket or inscribe upon my forearms a magical tattoo. The vampire will offer me a talisman. Now you have the secret, the vampire will say. Now at last, you have been seen as what you truly are. The vampire and I will go outside so he can smoke and he will be wearing his new Rick Owens coat and I will tell him he should get a faux hawk. And I will tell him I'm going to buy him one of those Rastafarian hats to put his dreadlocks in. Certainly not, he will say in disdain until he sees that I am joking. I'll tell him to start a fashion blog. 
When I cry, he will touch my shoulder once and take his hand away. It's always so hard to watch you people, the vampire will say. Of all the demons I know, the vampire is the most real and the least unkind. Maybe we will still be friends when I live on a farm with chickens and a goat and a big brindled dog that will love only me. Maybe I will write novels about my time with the vampire. They could be capers or noirs. We could solve crimes. Maybe even I will survive this cataclysmic age. If we lived in the country, we could see the stars. I'll tell the vampire snuffling, and he will tell me to stop being maudlin. No more whiskey for you, little dreamer, he will say. He'll take away my glass, and I will lean into his shoulder. And in that single breathless moment, the night will seem less large. That was great, and um, I don't. It has it been published? No, I wrote most of it this afternoon. <laughs> okay. All right. Anyway, um, thank you very much, and we'll see everyone uh, next month. And you don't have to, you can hang around and have some more drinks if you like. But well, thank you very much for coming. Bye. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB Bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.